0: On Friday, England thrashed the Czech Republic 5-0. And uh, this guy, Callum Hudson-Odoi, he made a really good... Debut, and uh, you can watch it on YouTube. This great strike he had at the goal. The goalie saved it, and then one of the defenders fluffed his lines and scored an own goal. And I kind of, kind of feel sad for the guy that he didn't actually get credited with the goal um, on his debut for his country. Anyway, there were some various interviews because there's a new upcoming star uh, for the English football team. You know, he'd almost got this goal at Wembley, um, and there were there were people just asking him uh, just. putting the limelight on him, and and he uh, emphasised and made a big point of thanking all those people that had got him to where he was. And the interviewer was like, "Okay, so can you be specific? Who are you talking about when you said um, that there are people that have helped me get to this place? Um, And he made a very clear point of saying, it's my mum and dad. And um, he said, you know what? Uh, Without them, I wouldn't be here. And uh, my mum and dad watch every game. There's no qualification. There was no, they only watch me when uh, I play for Chelsea or anything. It was uh, every game. My parents are there in the crowd cheering me on and they've sort of uh, been there driving me around and everything out. And you kind of take it for granted, don't you? Of course your parents are there cheering you on. Of course they're going to be your advocates and help you to get where you want to go. I was talking recently to a lad from our estate here in Bewbush and we were talking quite honestly and frankly about some of the highs of lows and uh, he, he was just telling me something about his family and the, uh, um, some of the sort of dramas and tragedies um, that he's got there. And, and he was telling me as we were chatting, um, and he had an obvious sadness in his eyes. He goes, don't know, my dad. Doesn't influence my life. Don't know who he is or what he's up to. I have got this uh, absence. And it was interesting He kind of felt that it's something that should be there that wasn't. Something that many of us take for granted, while many others of us go, you know what, I recognise that. It's, no one's taught me that dads should be there, but I kind of feel the absence. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this in verse 17, since you call on a father, everyone say father, Father. who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, everyone say foreigners. foreigners, here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. In this very first sentence of this tiny uh, uh, reading that we've gone through, he makes an assumption. He assumes that the people reading his epistle, his letter, call out to their heavenly father he assumes that they know that the person that they are addressing in their prayers is not just monarch or dictator or force but he says you call him father in the old testament god reveals himself in a number of different ways but one of them is as father if you go to the prophets it's interesting kind of the prophetic word brought to israel it was often god is father so isaiah jeremiah and malachi all mentioned god as father when jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray he began with this instruction that you address your heavenly Father. It was not just God, entity, force. It was not just monarch. It was not ruler, but it was Abba, Father. And Paul, this great apostle who wrote so much of our New Testament, again and again, he constantly tells us that God is our heavenly father. There is a point that all these writers want to emphasise. God is father. I think it's very deliberate that God revealed himself in scripture to these great men That he was dad. And in the 21st century where everything is up for grabs, sometimes it's difficult to sort of specify what that means. But I think if you look through uh, what God has said, that he longs for people to benefit from his qualities of provider. Role model, protector and encourager. All these things are the qualities that you should be able to look into God and find and benefit from and find yourself helped along with. He is there taking you to all your football games and he is there in the crowd at Wembley shouting at you, come on son, there is this... A message in scripture, you need to know God is personal, God loves you, and he has this great affection for you, and he wants to lead you on and prepare you for a destiny he has for you. And the invitation is always there to get to know him. We get to know him through prayer and study and fellowship, and all these different ways that we encounter God. And if we don't do these things, we are not going to find out God is Father, but he is going to be remote and someone that we don't feel connected to, and it won't help us. Our faith will become just uh, a sort of a, a religious thing that we follow, rather than a meaningful, intimate, interior experience. But Peter goes on. That is not his main point in this verse. He does not want you to go, oh, come on, guys, feel warm inside. God is your dad. He wants to alert us to the fact that there is a danger in this intimacy we can have with him. What is that danger? Well, when you find a partner, they are enchanting and interesting and they can be sort of generous and uh, they can be stimulating in all sorts of uh, different ways. And then you marry them. And then you live alongside them. And all the magical qualities that you gave them suddenly are a little different. Because you see how they leave the bathroom after they've finished. You see how tidy they are. You see what they whinge about. You live with them 24-7, and that experience of love and enchantment and romance, it changes. And uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Old Testament, it was, it was a great excuse not to uh, fulfil your national service, was you got married, because they were like, you know what, you've got to get to grips with your uh, other half before you go to war. So there was this uh, permission that you didn't need to go and fight for your country if you were married, because you have got enough on your plate, buddy. <laughs> but it is really easy to take people close in your life for granted. We're going to enjoy looking at mothers next week, and we've got a roller coaster ride of uh, a program for you but it is really easy to take mothers for granted all the different things they do you just assume that that's what they do and you don't really think about it and it's true for almost every close relationship in our life we can take them for granted and um, you start to speak rudely to them and you start to demand things of them and you seem to forget they're there that they are their own person and Peter says we do the same with God we take him for granted we go, oh he's my dad, that's great love to hear that Kevin, just preach it more and more so I get that warm fuzzy feeling in my heart and Peter says yeah that, that's not all there is that familiarity that breeds contempt that is in all your other relationships is the same with God as well we can treat God casually now I really hope that doesn't mean that We've got to wear a suit 24-7 just to be smart for him because I'm kind of shot myself in the foot. But we can treat God casually in our life. That he's there just to bless us. You know, when we get into ourselves into trouble again, oh, God, rescue me. And God's like, I told you a thousand times not to do that. And Why are you going there again? And you want blessing? We treat God casually. We step out of his will willfully And then a surprise when there are consequences. Peter tells us to fear God, tells us to fear the consequences of bad living. God is our Father, but He's not an indulgent Father. He doesn't let you get away with everything that you see fit to get up to, He doesn't indulge your sin. And he doesn't shrug off your little acts of rebellion that you constantly get up to. He notices them and he cares about them. God is your dad and he holds you to account for that. Though immoralities in our life, and we all have them, are not less because we have a heavenly father, but they are more important. Morality, ethics, good and bad, they should be of our paramount importance. They should be more important to us than they are to anyone else out there in the world. We should care deeply about our behaviour and about how our behaviour is perceived. Our dad is the heavenly father, high king of heaven, and he holds us to account. He is not partial to you. You don't get off, oh, you're a Christian, so you can get away with that. Peter says no. I haven't read this for a long time, so I hope for you, excuse me. So this is uh, from the uh, first book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy it says this. Suddenly Frodo noticed that a strange looking weather beaten man sitting in the shadows near the wall was also listening intently to the hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him and was smoking a long stem pipe curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fitted him well. But he had seen much wear um, but they had seen much wear and were now caked with mud. "'A travel-stained cloak of heavy dark-green cloth "'was drawn close about him, "'and in spite of the heat of the room, "'he wore a hood that overshadowed his face. "'But the gleam of his eyes could be seen "'as he watched the hobbits. "'Who's there? Who is that?' Frodo asked, "'when he got a chance to whisper to the barman, Mr Butterbar. "'I don't think you introduced him.' "'Him,' said the landlord, in an answering whisper, "'cocking an eye without turning his head.' I don't rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk. Rangers, we call them. He seldom talks. Not but what he... um, I struggled over this every time at home. Not but what he can tell, a rare tale when he has a mind. He disappears for a month or a year and then he pops up again. He was in and out pretty often last spring, but I haven't seen him lately. What his right name is, I've never heard. But he's known round here as Strider. He goes about at a great pace on his long shanks, though he don't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry. But there's no accounting for east and west, as we say in Bree, meaning the rangers and the shy folk, begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him, but at that moment Mr Barr was called away by a demand for more ale, and his last remark remained unexplained. Frodo found that Strider was looking at him now, as if he'd heard or guessed that what had been said. Presently, with a wave of his hand and a nod, he invited Frodo to come and sit by it. As Frodo drew near, he drew back his hood, showing a shaggy head of dark hair flecked with grey. In a pale stern face, a pair of keen grey eyes. I'm called Strider, he said in a low voice. I'm very pleased to meet you, Master Underhill, if old Butterbar has got your name right. He did, Frodo said stiffly. He felt far from comfortable under the stare of those keen eyes. Well, Master Underhill, said Strider, if I were you, I should stop your young friends from talking so much. Drink, fire and chance meetings are pleasant enough, but, well, this isn't the Shire. There are queer folk about, though I say as it shouldn't, he added with a wry smile, seeing Frodo's glance, and there have been even stranger travellers through Brie lately. And he went on, watching Frodo's face. In this epic tale uh, by Tolkien, we're introduced to this stranger called Strider. He is a ranger. And we find this mysterious character inhabiting the corner of this bar with his hood up. And um, then Frodo meets him. And we find that he's not part of society, he's strangely removed, slightly distant. People look at him with a little bit of suspicion, but you'll find in the story, he is extraordinarily helpful. He is an ally to have in a fight. Ultimately, this guy who seems almost invisible in the bar corner, Tolkien would reveal himself as a character called Aragorn this was actually the King of Gondor and I think it's clear to me and quite a few other Christians that read Lord of the Rings that this uh, King of Gondor sitting in the pub corner is obviously a type of Christ I think uh, Tolkien has uh, Jesus in a number of different uh, dresses in the Lord of the Rings but this king of Gondor takes the path of death and ultimately he brings redemption for many and it is fascinating how the character of Jesus just interlaces Tolkien's work again and again. But today I don't want to look at such an obvious analogy. I think it gives us a little hint as to something else Peter is saying today. Peter has said God is his father. Peter said he will judge impartially, that Christians don't get away with sin because of who their heavenly father is, that we are called to behave more morally rather than less, more righteously. And Peter then says, and i got you all to say out the word, he says we're supposed to live differently in this world. We are supposed to live as foreigners, And that's the uh, NIV translation, but there are um, other words that can be used for that. For God to be our father, for righteousness to be more important to us than anyone else, this means that we live differently in this world right now. We move in the here and now, not as everyone else does, but as exiles. If you love Jesus, you will never be the same as everyone else. You will never be as comfortable in this life as everyone else. If you love Jesus, you will never find your home and your satisfaction in this life. And Peter recognises that and he says you've got to live differently. And you've got to um, realise that and admit it and embrace it. We will never be the same as everyone else. Sin is an anathema to us. Evil and rebellion are terrible things that we don't make peace with. Goodness, righteousness, generosity, patience, love... These are the things that we chase after while others don't. And you know what? As well as having this personal morality that uh, is higher than everyone else's, we have a tendency in mid-conversation to look off into the distance. While everyone else is talking about the football scores and celebrity dramas and politics, our eyes glaze over as we think of our heavenly destination. This isn't it. The importance of celebrity and sport and politics, they are transitory. They pass us by. We have our gaze on something Heavenly, something eternal, something perfect, something beautiful. And what this means is two things, I think. And it's kind of encapsulated by Strider. People find us confusing. They don't know what to do with us. Because we do not have the same alliance that they do. People in this world are at home here they will do whatever it takes to find their peace and satisfaction and pleasure in this place but we we are not called to account here we have a heavenly father who loves us and so they look at our morality and they are confused by it and they criticize us for it and sometimes they hate us for it and sometimes they are just bemused by it and sometimes They love it. You're an alternative. And they're the ones that get drawn near to Christ and become Christians because you have uh, realised that your heavenly father uh, calls you to a different style of life to everyone else. But we also, as well as confusing, as well as this objectionable tendency to look off into eternity, we have hopefully this tendency to bring blessing because we have a heavenly father who loves us that we have a connection to him and truth and beauty and love that no one else has and so when we're around we should bring blessing as well people may find us confusing people may find us irritating but they should also find that blessing comes through us as well are the light of our father's character should shine through us. And so people should have a fascinatingly complicated relationship with us, because we are champions of morality and truth and the underdog, and for the people that are oppressed, and they go, "Oh, I quite like that sometimes." But then we bring truth and love and patience. And that blesses people. And so that is the experience that non-Christians should have with you. And I wonder if that's true. And if it isn't, why isn't it? So we're all secret royalty waiting for our thrones to come. Our sin is not a small matter, but it is incredibly important to our dad in heaven. And Peter will then take this idea of sin and rebellion and evil and he focuses on it and dwells on it a little bit longer. If you've got a Bible, turn turn to a not often referred to book of the Bible uh, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus is notoriously uh, troublesome and uh, hard to read. And if you've only got a short period of time, it's very difficult to find something uplifting and encouraging for the day ahead if you go into Leviticus. But all of it is kind of uh, the, the back story to everything that happens in the New Testament. And so we need it there. And uh, we're going to read a bit. So Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, uh, but later on they uh, prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value of the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can go on and buy back their property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay what was sold, um, it will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. And so this is a principle in, um, in Leviticus. That uh, if you're poor, you can sell stuff and then you can redeem it with a ransom. And later on in Leviticus, it will tell us that you can do it with people. And that slightly unsettles us, and quite rightly, because we have a horrific um, history of outrageous uh, slavery in Britain. And and so we rightly kind of struggle with the idea of slavery. But uh, for Israel, it seemed um, it was not half the obscene thing um, that we read about um, in our own history. And so people that were poor could sell themselves as sort of indentured uh, um, slaves or servants, and then they would work uh, like this until they are able to buy themselves back or like they'd saved up enough money or, or some sort of family member bought themselves back. So it was a kind of a way to pay off your debts um, without um, sort of society collapsing. And so you could offer yourself up as a slave when things got bad. And then when things got good, you could uh, buy yourself back. But there was always a cost. There was always a ransom to be paid. There was always a price of redemption. And Peter draws on this as he's talking And are writing to these uh, people in Turkey. And he says, you know what? God intervened in our cases. Similar to this Old Testament scenario of redemption and slaves. We, every single person, was in service to sin and slavery. We were all... Bound by this self-destructive behaviour that was anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-love. And that damaged us. And it imprisons us. When we adopt these behaviours... We are sort of locked up because we can't get out of it. They are uh, just repetitive styles of behaviour that um, we get entrapped in. And then there's no hope. There's no future. Once sin has got you, there is no escape of your own accord. You can't buy yourself back because you will never be perfect to do so. And Peter brings this to mind. Today we are still surrounded by people in this state. If you're a Christian, you are out of it. But if you don't know Jesus, then you are in this state. And there are some that are oblivious to the captivity. They don't realise that they are locked in these cycles of destruction through sin. Others are content to be in this place where they have no freedom where they uh, just satisfy the sort of uh, pleasures of the flesh without thought of morality or eternity. Others realise that their behaviour and that their righteousness falls short, but they imagine that necessity or society excuses them. They think, you know, well, I have to do it. The ends justifies the means. Or that, well, everyone else is doing it. Why are you drawing me up on it? And people think, perhaps, that the short-term advantages outweigh any long-term disadvantage, any condemnations that will come. They kind of seek the short-term benefits. But Peter tells us, that all evil is a dead end. No matter what it promises you, no no matter uh, what prospects of the future you think you have with that bad behaviour, it is a cul-de-sac. It doesn't go anywhere. Greed and hatred and lust, they may temporarily please, but they finish badly. Whatever they you think they offer you it is going to end badly friends it is important to remind ourselves that we have a Holy Spirit directed life that he doesn't take us down these dead ends these places where there is no hope our Holy Spirit in our hearts he gives us values and Uh, inspires actions that take us to the open road, not to places where uh, there is just sort of rats and rubbish and um, sewage, but to an open road of beauty and uh, wonder and glory. Now, for you and I, there is very little in this world that beats the pound and the dollar and the Bitcoin. These things are kind of make the world go round. They're the things that you use to pay your council tax, buy your washing machine and uh, put uh, fuel in your car. It's very difficult to live without money in our society. And so they become uh, a kind of measure of your success How wealthy you are must be how much you enjoy life. But Peter twists this, and I really like this. He says that these currencies that endure, you know, and they do endure. You can sort of uh, pick up like gold, um, even sort of from the Roman period. And if it's sort of true gold, it is still worth something. And so there are these precious metals that have a longevity and a value that seems to be almost eternal. But Peter tells us they are perishable. He says their worth and value is finite. Scientifically, he would agree that gold may not corrode. It may uh, uh, stand the test of time. But gold, which we think is so precious and will last for so long, Peter says in the light of eternity, it is transitory. The things you think last in this life, Paul says they pass by, they are just a a moment in the light of eternity. And so when God was paying the ransom for you and I, he didn't use silver or gold. He didn't use Bitcoin or another digital currency. He didn't trade in goats or sheep or uh, the uh, sort of wealth of banks and empires. He used the most precious thing possible. God paid the highest conceivable price by God or man. God paid with his one and only son. There is no currency, there is no wealth, there is no thing to be acquired or given that can match the value of his son. And again, I love this. This ransom paid has an incalculable value. You cannot measure the richness of this ransom. When God gave his son, there was a ransom paid that is unequaled in anything else. And this reminds us of two things. And, and these two things kind of just reinforce the points I've already made. First of all, this incredibly incalculable ransom paid shows us the depravity of sin. The price was paid big time because the debt was massive. The sin that you treat uh, with nonchalance, with, uh, without really caring about, without thinking through the sin that you indulge on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. This is not a small thing. This sin that we indulge is the thing that caused God to give the most precious thing at his fingertips, his own son. And this should grieve us and go, oh, my selfishness, My anger, my hate, my greed, my lust. This is not a small thing. This is why God had to send his only son, because there was nothing else to pay for it. And the second thing is, it also gives us an insight into God's value he puts on us. God loves us so much that he gave his only son. And I think you'll find there's a verse about that somewhere. And as we think that gold is transitory, that God gave his son for us, that sin is the worst thing that can happen to us, and that the Father loves us so much that he withheld nothing from us, suddenly this helps us see ourselves... Not at home in this world, not at peace with all the anger and strife and grief of this world. But we are reminded that we are travellers passing through. We are going towards an everlasting destiny where even gold and silver have no uh, intrinsic worth. We belong to a heavenly economy where goodness and family and the soul are the things of worth, not gold. Now, at the very end of these, uh, these couple of verses we've read, Peter mentions something that I think is almost worth a sermon in itself. But if I did that, we would never get through even First Peter 1, let alone um, the whole book. Um, But he says that before Jesus came that we all are part of families and cultures that pass on things to us and much of that is worthless. Much of that is sinful and has no future. And uh, I remember our home group sort of talking about Uh, sort of things passed on through generations and uh, inherited values. So many of our tastes and preferences and values and prejudices are shaped by our family. What you like, what you love, what you seek out is often shaped by your family and friends. You are... And all of us are often a product of the people around us. If our parents celebrate something in particular, we want to please them and we end up adopting that thing as a value of our own. You find, uh, uh, even like even on the, the most superficial level, uh, when you... Um, I was listening to uh, uh, this uh, football commentator talk about why he supported Sunderland. He doesn't live anywhere near Sunderland, but he could trace back this affection for the football team Sunderland through his sort of father and grandfather, and there was this wanting to abide by that tradition. And Peter says, not that supporting Sunderland's bad, but that there is a lot that we unthinkingly take from our parents and our cultures that is actually destructive. There is a lot you and I take from our parents and our friends and the media that we take on and we think it's harmless, but Peter says, no, there's more to it than you first think. Sometimes... Having a traditional sort of roast dinner on a Sunday may seem, oh, you know, I'm just carrying on something and, and it sort of got, uh, uh, it just sort of makes me reminisce of past times and it's, I'll sort of bring my children up in this sort of English way of uh, living. But again and again, there are things like that that are unhelpful rather than. Helpful, and it would have been uh, great to sort of spend a bit of time unpacking what we can inherit from our parents that is actually no good at all. You see, for many, the hardest thing about following Jesus is not being a stranger to the people at work, but being a stranger to your loved ones. And I've seen this time and time again people turn to Jesus. And suddenly, that connection they had with everyone else around them is severed because their alliances are now different. Turn to the last uh, Bible reading, uh, Luke chapter 14. It says this in Luke chapter 14, 25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turned to him and said... And turning to them, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be a disciple. That's an incredibly uh, divisive bit of teaching. That is not something that you would go and hear a life coach say. Uh, with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him, with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation where, while the other is a long way off, and he will ask him for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes it very clear that when we follow him, we don't add him to our lives on top of everything else. And we don't hold him up just as an ideal that will sometimes chase. He says, no, no, I come to the middle and everything else gets dispensed with. When Jesus calls our name and calls him to himself, we must be prepared to forsake everything. Now, for many in this country, we often have like a, a notional Christianity, so Christianity if you say you're Christian, people aren't that bothered because they think they're Christian too. But sometimes they'll scratch beneath the surface and find that, do you actually mean it? That it doesn't mean going to sort of hatch, match and dispatch meetings, but you go to a church every week. You go to home groups and prayer meetings. That following Jesus is not some sort of hobby, but the central meaning of your entire existence. And people find that confusing and upsetting because suddenly your values are different to theirs. And uh, this is harshest when it's families. When your parents have brought you up one way and then you discover Jesus and then you have to jettison a lot of what they think is good. They get upset and you get upset. And, P- and Jesus says, Yeah, you've got to count the cost. This is coming. And when you raise children up one way and then become a Christian and then suddenly find, you go, you know, all those old values are gone. I, I'm a new person. Uh, I believe different things. And your children will go, what? But I thought you were my mum and my dad. And you go, no, I, I've got new allegiances. I've got a new alliance. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. And all the old indulgences that you loved suddenly pass by because you want to chase after what Jesus wants. And it's hard, and it is difficult, and peace wants you to know that that's a reality that you need to confront. And Jesus says you have to count the cost. Are you prepared for that? If you are not prepared for that, go home. Jesus doesn't make room for half-hearted believers who kind of incorporate him a little bit. He says... I am Lord or I am not. There is no halfway house. And if there is no halfway house, then you will endure conflict, and we're sorry about that, but you've got to decide what's more important in life. Friends, we've got nothing to look back on. The ransom was paid, and it was the most beautiful ransom ever paid. It shows how much your heavenly father loves you and how grievous sin is. And so the invitation, and Peter will go on about this, so I'm going to have to find out lots of other ways of portraying the life of an exile to you. But Peter says again and again, you've got to live as exiles. You are not of this world. You've got a citizenship somewhere else. But as we confuse and upset, and bring outrage to our friends, and family, and neighbours, and work colleagues, because we hold ourselves to a different account, I think there's the invitation of Strider to still be a blessing, to still bring goodness, and patience, and love wherever we go. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, as always, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Peter. We thank you that they were forged in the fire of your teaching and his own experience. And Lord God, we take them on board this morning with uh, a sort of uh, intensity and deliberation. That applies to anything beyond your word. Lord God, we, we pray that we would not treat our familiarity with you to breed contempt, that you would be honoured at every point, that, Lord God, sin and evil and rebellion would always be something that is hateful to us, and increasingly so. And, Lord God, I pray that you would help us live as exiles in this place, that we would hold ourselves to a different account to everyone else, but that, Lord God, as we move amongst the people who don't know you, that we would bring your fragrance to bear on them. That love and light and patience and goodness would follow us and touch the lives of those around us to cause them too to realise the truth. God, I pray this all, and in Jesus' name, amen.